Good morning, church. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas. We, uh, here, Dean, I'm going to give this back to you. We uh, drove in Friday from Beaumont, Texas. That's where we typically go down for Christmas. And I'll tell you, that's not a fun trip when you have a two-year-old. So, but no, it was great. He enjoyed time with his uh, Grammy and who we call Fun Guy, which is his grandfather. Um, and, and, and it's Fun Guy like he's fun, not like a fungus. So just have to clarify that. When I was in high school, one of my best friends was a guy named Dan Willingham. We went to the same church, and he was just a year younger than me, so we connected pretty fast. And like most good friends, we did a lot together. One day during the summer of my senior year of high school, Dan calls me up and tells me there's some new teenagers that just moved to town, and they were going to attend our church. He wanted to do something with them just just to make them feel welcome. I loved the idea, so I told him to set it up, and and we'd hang out with them. So he did. He decided we should go rafting. I'd never been rafting before, so I thought, hey, this would be a fun experience. The teenagers that just moved to town were twins, and, and Caitlin really didn't want to go rafting, but Logan decided he would tag along with us. I let Dan plan everything since I had never been rafting and just decided to let him tell me what I should do. Here's the problem. Dan had never been rafting before either. I didn't know this until we were well on our adventure. So we set out around 1 p.m. for an hour drive to the river we were going to. I now know that's way too late to start rafting. I had no idea at the time. So Dan drives his truck, and I drive my truck, and and the plan was to drive my truck to where we would end, and then we'd put Dan's truck where we would start, and then we would just drive back later. And and again, I, I trust that Dan knows what he's doing, but he obviously does not. He has no idea where we're going, and Logan and I are just blindly following. And then Dan decides just to find a random spot to start, and we'll just hike back when we're done, raft and all. We get started about 3 or 4 p.m., and we're actually having a pretty good time. The current isn't too fast, and we're just relaxing and getting to know Logan. A few hours go by, and we don't think anything of it until we decide that we're done. But then we realize four things. There's not a good place to stop. It's getting dark. We have no idea where we are, and we don't have cell phone reception. So understandably, I I start to panic a little bit inside, And and the sad thing is, at this point, I still feel like Dan knows what he's doing, and he clearly did not. Our raft raft gets to the shallow point of the river and stops, and it's dark now. But by what I can only say is the grace of God, Dan has one bar of reception on his cell phone. So with a low battery and low reception, he does the logical thing. He calls our youth intern. And it's at this point I'm starting to wonder if Dan knows what he's doing. After Logan and I yell at him, he gets off the phone and he finally calls 911. It's about 10 o'clock at night when he makes this call. They actually send a search party out for us. The problem is we just have a general idea. We have no idea where we're at. We're completely lost and we have no way of telling them where we are. So we just have have it set in our mind that we're going to have to spend the night on, on this raft on the river. We're cold, we're wet, and we're hungry. A couple of hours pass, and they, and they finally find us. We just completely leave the raft and hike up the side of the mountain to get to the road. They drive us back to our trucks. We thank them, 
and then we begin to drive home. I get home somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m. That is one of the only times I can remember being truly lost. I got to a point that night where I lost all hope of anyone finding us. And that's not a good feeling. Because not only were we cold, wet, and hungry, so many other thoughts just kept running through my mind. Are there any dangerous animals out here? Is Logan ever going to hang out with us again? Are we going to be alive for Logan to ever hang out with us again? And if we do survive, just how badly are my parents going to kill me? And, and just, just because you're probably curious, we, we obviously survived. My, my parents were really ticked off, but uh, they obviously, again, didn't kill me. Logan and I became pretty good friends throughout college, uh, and there was a panther on the loose that night, and so that was actually a legitimate, a legitimate fear. If you've ever truly been lost, you know the kind of anxiety that comes with it. Being lost is not fun. It's not something we try to do on purpose. But unfortunately, it happens. When we think of our Christian walk, there are times when we're on this journey that we might feel lost. It's not fun. It isn't something we do on purpose. But unfortunately, sometimes it happens. Maybe you're feeling lost in your spiritual walk right now, and you're not really sure what to do. I, I don't have all the answers. Just know that up front. But I, I can tell you that I have been there, and sometimes I still feel like I'm there. It may be a moment when you aren't really sure where to go. It might be as simple as just feeling stuck where you are. Maybe you're at a moment where you don't know if God is actually happy with you. Maybe you aren't sure if this Jesus way is really all it's cracked up to be. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us three parables dealing with being lost. And I want to work through this entire chapter because I believe there's some great application that we can for when we feel lost in our spiritual walk. Now, let me preface this by saying, if you are in a spiritual slump right now, I am not going to promise that by the end of the sermon you're going to be out of it. Because honestly, there's nothing I can say to get you out of it. But I do hope that God will touch your heart in some way so that maybe you won't feel so lost anymore. With that being said, let's jump into Luke chapter 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Before we jump into the parable, let's, uh, let's make sure we have the context. The Pharisees are upset with Jesus. That's pretty typical. And the reason they're upset with him is a pretty typical one, too. Tax collectors and sinners are coming to hear Jesus speak, and he's not shooing them away. In fact, even though it, it doesn't say this, because of the very nature of who Jesus was, I could see him telling them to come closer, giving them a hug, and, and letting them know it was, it was nice to see them, like, you know, like every good preacher should do. And the Pharisees are, are livid with this. But the question is, why are they so mad? Well, Luke tells us it's because he's associating and even eating with them, but, but that doesn't give the full picture. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law were seen as the example of what it looked like to keep the law. Because of this, it led to an arrogance. Sorry, I lost my place. Um, they, they strived for perfection in keeping the law. 
Because of this, it led to an arrogance that they, uh, they had because they were trying to keep the law perfectly and no one else was in their eyes. So they looked down on almost everyone because in their mind, they were better. So when Jesus, someone who was a teacher like they were, physically portrays to the tax collectors and sinners that he is not better than they are by associating and even eating with them, the Pharisees get angry. The Pharisees were a prideful and arrogant bunch who thought social status and being better than everyone was more important than actually following God. Teaching and keeping the law was just a way to elevate that. Now, I do believe they thought the law was important, and, I do, and they thought that God was real, but they were so blinded by their pride and arrogance, they missed God standing right in front of them. Now, I say all this because understanding the mindset of the Pharisees is going to be important as we break down these three parables. Jesus is telling these parables to the Pharisees. And to understand what Jesus is trying to say here, we need that proper context. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one who is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. We typically hear this, these parables talked about as reasons we need to go out and bring the lost to church. And although I don't necessarily think that's a bad interpretation, I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to teach here. And there's a couple of reasons I think that. First, both the sheep and the coin are possessions of the shepherd and the woman, respectively. Possessions that they had and then lost. This is not a new sheep or coin that they found or traded for. Second, the shepherd and the woman in these stories represents Jesus or God, not Christians going out and bringing to God a new believer. Jesus makes this clear in the parable of the prodigal son. But here's where these two parables get interesting. Neither the sheep nor the coin do anything to be found. Jesus is making a huge point here. It is not us, Christians or non-Christians, who find God. God pursues us and finds us exactly where we are. And, and this obviously has multiple levels. God pursues the person who does not believe in his son so that they can understand the relationship God offers through Christ. God pursues the, the person who does believe in his son so they can understand more and more each day how God views them. And this pursuit is constant from God. But far too often, I, I have the mindset of the Pharisees. I feel as if I need to do something. I feel like I need to do everything perfectly so that God can find me instead of, or so I can find God instead of God finding me. I don't believe the sheep and the coin in the story represents the tax collectors or sinners. I think Jesus is directly telling the Pharisees that they are the ones who are lost. 
The reason they are striving so hard to keep the law, besides social status, is because they think it will please God and he will love them more. And Jesus is telling them that, they already, that God already loves them. They don't have to earn it. They just have to accept it. Now, I, I do want to stop for a minute and acknowledge that that may be hard for us to accept. No matter how much I understand in my mind that God loves me unconditionally, there's always a little something inside of me that says, I need to do something to earn it. And if I'm not careful, that feeling can continue to grow until I believe it's about what I do, not about what God has already done. What Jesus is communicating to the, in these two parables is that the tax collectors and sinners are not the ones who are lost. They have been found by the simple fact that they have accepted, lo- accepted love and acceptance from God as a free gift, not something they have to earn. Now, I do want to pause again because you may be asking, if this is all a free gift, what was the point of the law? And that's a great question, and honestly, a sermon in and of itself. But what I do want you to understand is that even when the law was given to Moses, it was given in the context of building a relationship with Israel. From the very beginning, when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, he has been in the business of relationship building, not rule keeping. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have sent his son for that very purpose. Let's, check, let's jump back into Luke 15. To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them a story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between the sons, his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to, to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son." Please take me in as one of your hired servants. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring me the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast." For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked for one of the servants who was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I have, sla- I have slaved for you and never once ref- uh, refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money and pro- on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing a fa- the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now is found. 
I've heard this story so many times, I, I just forget how incredible of a storyteller Jesus is. I often wonder, did Jesus come up with this on the spot, or is it something he thought through before? I, I don't know. But to, to tell this parable that has so many layers, after already telling two similar parables just to make sure that they get the point, is incredible. Honestly, Jesus is doing so much in this story, I highly doubt I fully understand everything he's trying to communicate. But I do want to point out a few things that he is trying to communicate. And remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees who he is considering the lost sheep and coin. Similar to today, children during this time did not get their inheritance until their father passed away. So for a son to come up to his father and tell him, I want my share of the inheritance, was to look his father in the eyes and say, I wish you were dead. Your money is more important to me than you are. That's not an easy conversation. But for some reason, the father does it. He allows his cocky, arrogant, disrespectful son, who he knows is probably just going to squander the money, he allows him to leave and, and almost with his blessing. If anyone has the right to be mad in this story, it's the father. And we get no indication of that. He understands that people like his son make stupid decisions. He also understands that sometimes we need to make those mistakes in order to learn a lesson. The father is not mad at his son. He's not even upset with his son. As we read, the son squanders his money. A famine breaks out. He's hungry and desperate. The next little detail, honestly, has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it just gives you an example of the layers Jesus uh, puts into his parables. If there's a famine... Farmers are typically hit the worst, yet this guy persuades a farmer to hire him. How charismatic was this guy? How manipulative was this guy to talk a farmer who probably has no extra resources to hire someone into hiring him? I don't have an answer for that. I just find it interesting. And so long story short, he comes to his senses. He's humbled, and he's going, back, he's going to go back to his father and beg him to be the lowest of lowest servants. But before he even gets back all the way home, his father sees him, is filled with love and compassion, runs to him, hugs and kisses him. Before his son says a word, his father has already forgiven him. I think far too often we have the mindset of the son in this moment. We arrogantly spit in the face of God by not keeping the law, by sinning or just screwing up in general. And when we finally come to our senses, we turn back to God in guilt and shame, and we beg God to forgive us for being such a screw-up. But before we can, God runs to us, embraces us, and lets us know that we've already been forgiven. In fact, we were forgiven long before we ever sinned. We were forgiven long before we became Christians, even long before we were born, because we were forgiven the day that Jesus died on the cross, and every requirement of God was fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus in this parable is foreshadowing to that moment. All the son has to do in this moment is accept the fact that his father is not upset with him, and accept the fact that no matter what, he is still his father's son just like we only have to accept the fact that we are God's children 
And he does not get upset or angry with us because of what Christ did on the cross. As Jesus continues his story, the son can't fathom that his father would actually be so gracious to him. So he begins to beg. Make me a servant. I'm no longer fit to be your son. The father doesn't even answer a silly question, a silly request, and tells his servants to get a robe, a ring, and sandals. Oh, also get a fat calf because we're about to have a party. And why are we having a party? The father says in verse 24, For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. The son, from the beginning of the story, wanted to do things on his own. He wanted to earn his own way, just like the Pharisees wanted to. Honestly, sometimes like I want to. What Jesus is trying to communicate through this parable is that you don't have to earn your own righteousness. You don't have to own your, earn your own worth. You don't even have to earn acceptance from God because we are righteous through Jesus Christ. We are worthy because God calls us his children, and we are accepted because God loves us so much. These are all free gifts that God gives to us. We just have to believe that it's true. Now, I'm going to take a moment and just get real with you. If you decide to bear the weight of trying to be perfect, trying to gain your own righteousness, trying to earn your own worth, and trying to earn acceptance from God, it will eventually break you down. I know this because it broke me down about a year and a half ago. I was trying to earn my own way. I was trying to do everything perfectly. And it was a weight I could not carry because I wasn't meant to carry it. I won't go into details up here, but just know that my world in its own way came crashing down. But it was in that moment that God put someone in my life who began to teach me about grace. He began to teach me what it means to let go of trying to be perfect, and he's been teaching me how God accepts me unconditionally. Because of this, I'm more secure in Christ I'm more content with my life, and and honestly, I'm just a better man. I learn what it means to accept God's grace on a daily basis, and then God is the one who has transformed me. Just so we're clear, I'm, I'm not perfect. I mess up all the time. I'm sure I've messed up a few times this morning already. And life isn't necessarily happy all the time. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. If I can remember how God views me, how God accepts me even though I'm a screw-up, that sustains me even when life is not going great. I'll tell you one important thing. There are people out there that do not like this. They think you have to earn it, just like the other son in Jesus' parable. These people have gone all their life thinking they've done everything right. They think grace is needed for when you are first saved, but after that, we have to earn it. They tend to get mad when people who have done terrible things, who have done terrible things, claim to be Christians. They tend to be judgmental, unforgiving, self-righteous, prideful, and the list goes on. Again, I know this because I was like this before my grace journey. Now, like I've said throughout the sermon, I tend to dip back into that every once in a while. But just like the father in the parable, God tells me 
that his grace is sufficient. If you're feeling lost today, just know that there is no good work you can do to be found. In fact, one of the reasons you may feel lost is because you've been trying and trying and trying for so long, and yet you don't feel any closer to Jesus. And that's a hard place to be in. And I don't have all the answers. All I can do is tell you what helps me. I remind myself on a daily basis of a few things. I am loved by God. That does not change. I am worthy because God says I am worthy. It doesn't matter what people think of me because I know I'm accepted by God. Nothing I do will ever change how God views me. Romans 8.1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of that, I don't have to feel guilt or shame when I mess up. God is pleased with me because of Jesus, not because of what I do. And last, God's grace is sufficient. I have to remind myself of those things and a few other things on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. And it helps because ultimately it reminds me that God is the one who found me when I was lost, not the other way around. Let's end in a prayer. Father God, you are an amazingly wonderful God. Words, we know, words don't do justice to just how great you are. And God, I know there are people in this room who feel lost, who feel like maybe you've abandoned them, who don't feel that closeness to you like they want to. And I pray that you let them know that you're the one pursuing them, that you love them, that you want that relationship with them, and it's based on nothing that they do. God, I pray that you will open our eyes to your grace more and more every day and help us to understand that we'll never arrive. We'll never get to a point where we're perfect. We'll never get to a point where we don't need you. But help us to understand that's not about what we do. That's just about understanding how you view us, how you accept us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. We love you so much. Pray us all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.